you have a Bible with you, I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts will be in chapter 4, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 13 through 22. So we're in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. I wanted to thank my brother in Christ, Mark Ratuna, who preached last week, did such a great job yesterday, uh, yesterday last week morning and last Sunday night, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to be ordaining him at the end of the service, so I'll be telling you a little bit more about that after our closing prayer. But for now, we're in Acts chapter 4, 13 through 22. The title of the sermon this morning is Christian. Christian resistance. Christian resistance. Acts 4, 13 through 22. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old." Dear Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you as our great God and King, and we're asking you to speak to us today through your living word. We're grateful to be able to open the scriptures which are inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. And as we consider what Peter and John are going through here in Acts chapter 4, I pray that you would relate many truths to our own hearts and our own lives to give us courage to stand up in the midst of adversity. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. John Knox is one of the most famous reformers of church history. He was the well-known Scottish reformer who founded the Presbyterian Church and opposed Mary, Queen of Scots. John Knox came to saving faith in the 1530s, and he became a staunch supporter of the Protestant Reformation. Knox's giftedness as a preacher promoted him as the pastor of his parish church at the castle of St. Andrews in 1546. In his first sermon at this post, he exposited from the seventh chapter of Daniel comparing the Pope with the Antichrist. His sermon was marked by his conviction that the Bible alone was the sole authority and that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is what Christians stand on. And these two elements became the emphasis of the rest of his life. A few days later, there was a debate that was following, allowing him to eloquently describe biblical themes in contrast to the mass, purgatory, and prayers for the dead. John Knox's chaplaincy of the castle garrison did not last long. The very next year, the French besieged the castle and forced the surrender of the garrison. The Protestant nobles and others, including Knox, were taken prisoner and forced to row in the French galleys. The galley slaves were chained to benches and rowed throughout the day without a change in posture while an officer watched over them with a whip in hand. At one point, an officer showed a picture of the Virgin Mary to John Knox and told him to give it a kiss of veneration. He refused, and when the picture was pushed into his face, the prisoner seized the picture and threw it into the sea. Let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. After that, according to Knox, the Scottish prisoners were no longer forced to perform such devotions. In 1549, after spending 19 months in the galley prison, Knox was released. From 1549 to 1555, Knox took refuge in England, 
Knox returned to Scotland in 1555, only to be driven out by persecution the next year. After spending some time with John Calvin in Geneva and even serving there for a few years as a pastor, he eventually ended up in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1559. With his return, the work of the Reformation advanced rapidly. It was evident that the common people hungered for the pure preaching of the gospel, a hunger created by a mighty work of the Spirit of Christ. Romanism was abandoned. Superstition was condemned. The chains of Rome had been broken, and the nation moved steadily into the direction of becoming a Protestant country. Knox's preaching led the way. Mary, Queen of Scots, was known to have said, quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe, close quote. Perhaps Knox's best-known contribution to the Reformation was the fact that he pushed back greatly against the authorities of state. Until Knox, and for some time afterward, the Reformers believed that a Christian must always live in submission to secular authorities. From Romans chapter 13, they reasoned that the king and queen was established by God. Therefore, they must be obeyed. Even wicked monarchs were to be obeyed insofar as their commands didn't violate Scripture. For Knox, this unquestioning obedience was unacceptable. His experience and witness to persecution, along with his view of idolatry, led Knox to disagree with the prevailing view of subjugation to the throne. Focusing upon the Old Testament, Knox came to a different conclusion. Central to Knox's position were the prophets and their insistence upon purifying the nation of Israel from idolatry in the Old Testament. And so for Knox, as he studied the Old Testament and saw their resistance to ungodly leaders, the implications were obvious. Just as Christians could not obey wicked laws, they should not submit to wicked rulers. In his mind, therefore, the Catholic Mass was idolatry and should be rejected. In his mind, the Catholic monarch, such as the Queen Mary I, was therefore idolatrous and a wicked leader. Christians should not submit to rulers but oppose them. And Knox is remembered as a firebrand reformer who was either loved or hated. Some historians would say that John Knox's greatest legacy may not have been the Scottish Reformation. By arguing for rebellion, violence if necessary, against wicked rulers, Knox laid a foundation upon which others would build. His thinking about the relationship between God and the sovereign and the subject, though extreme for his day, was the key to what became known as the American Revolution. In our passage today, we're going to learn a little bit about Christian resistance. Long before John Knox was ever persecuted for preaching the gospel in Scotland, the apostles faced severe persecution in Jerusalem. There are definitely many similarities between John Knox and the apostles, particularly Peter, as we're examining this morning. Both were fiery preachers. Both desired more than anything to exalt Jesus over Judaism and later over Catholicism. And both were willing to disobey the authorities over them in order to carry out the Great Commission. Are you willing this morning to participate in Christian resistance? What does that look like in your life today? And how does that How does that look in our culture? Well, this morning, I want us to look at three headings that will help us think through some of those things that we're talking about, and they are, number one, you can't argue against a changed life. Number two, you can't deny the evidence of God's work. And number three, you can't contain the truths of the gospel. Let's look at our first heading together this morning. Number one, you can't argue with a changed life. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says Peter and John had an unwavering boldness. Look at verse 13. Here we read by the author Luke. He says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
After God had used Peter and John to heal the lame man, the Jews were upset. This man that was by the beautiful gate who had been lame from birth was now made well. And he was walking and he was leaping and he was praising God. And everyone knew about it. Everyone had witnessed it. And no doubt everyone was asking the authorities, what are we to think about this? Peter has now taken the opportunity to preach that in Jesus, you can have a personal resurrection. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you too can be raised from the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, and they didn't believe in the personal resurrection of the believer. The authorities therefore arrested Peter and John, and on the next day, they set them down in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, at this time in Israel, or in Jerusalem, we should say, there are about 5,000 men who had already believed. And if you add to that women and children, there could have easily been 15,000 to 20,000 believers. And so the Sanhedrin must be careful how they handle this explosive, escalating situation. Peter and John had this unwavering boldness because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit gave them power. The Holy Spirit gave them courage. The Holy Spirit gave them bravery like never before. And Peter told the authorities, if you look back up in verses 8 through 10, he said, rulers of the people and elders, verse 8, verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Peter and John were bold because they had seen the risen Christ. They had run to the tomb on resurrection morn. They had seen the grave clothes lying there. They were there when Jesus said in Galilee, and he told Peter to feed my sheep. They were there on the Mount of Olives at Christ's ascension. And the builders may have rejected the stone, but Peter and John recognized Jesus Christ indeed was the cornerstone. He was the foundation of the church. They would build their faith in the church of Jesus Christ on Jesus Christ, not on anyone else. And so they knew that he was the author and perfecter of their faith. And they knew that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And they knew that there was salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved except through Jesus. That truth is still true today. Amen? It's still true today. You can't be saved because you're a son of Abraham. You can't be saved because you have an admiration for Moses. You can't be saved by your own efforts. You must be saved through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Now, when the Sanhedrin saw this kind of boldness that was coming out of Peter and John, they understood these men. They realized that these men were uneducated and common men. Guess what? Peter and John did not go to the rabbinical schools in Jerusalem. They were not respected or acclaimed by the PhDs and the THDs of Judaism. They had no degree, no diploma, and no certificate of higher theology. But the Jews were astonished. They were amazed. They were stunned. They were perplexed. They were aghast, taken back, and confounded. How did these men do it? And then they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. They had been discipled by supreme intelligence. They had been tutored by the author of the Bible. They had been schooled by the Alpha and the Omega. Formal education does not grant transformation. Formal education does not result in conversion. Formal education does not equate conviction. Those things are done by the Spirit of God in the life of a man or a woman when they confess their sins before Christ and they are born again. And when they're born again, Peter and John began to spend time with Jesus. You see, they walked with him and they talked with him in a way that was unique and special. And they left everything to be with the one who could teach them all things. 
They were given special insight into the things which Jesus did that the Jews were still blind to. And what triggered the Sanhedrin's recognition that these men had been with Jesus is the fact that they were doing the same things that Jesus did. In fact, I would say there are three trademarks that specifically garnered their attention. These three trademarks are not in your notes, but let me just give them to you. Three things that Jesus did well, that Peter and John are doing the exact same things. Here they are. Number one, they performed miracles. So the, the Sanhedrin thought that when Jesus had been crucified, that they wouldn't have to worry about the water being turned into wine, people being healed, people being raised from the dead, that they, they, all those headaches of explaining that could be done away with. Now, all of a sudden here in Acts, you have Peter and John and the apostles speaking in other languages miraculously, and now you have the healing of the lame man, and so these miracles are continuing, and so they don't know what to do with it. The second mark that Jesus did that they're now doing is that these men speak with authority. Jesus spoke with authority. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 says, when Jesus finished saying these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And the apostles are now following suit. They are unafraid to say what needs to be said. They are bold and full of confidence. The third mark that distinguished Jesus from others that the apostles carried on is how they interpreted the Old Testament. Jesus would say time and time again, it is written. It is written. Or he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus would go into further application and revelation of what it is that the Old Testament was actually saying. The Jews stopped in a, in a backward interpretation of the Old Testament because they didn't see that the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Because when Christ was before them, they denied Christ, therefore denying the prophecies of the Old Testament. And in Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter waxed eloquently from the Old Testament. He used Joel chapter 2, and he used Psalm chapter 16. We talked a few weeks ago how he then worked through passages that referred to the millennial kingdom. And Peter was able to understand the Old Testament and he was able to proclaim truths from the Old Testament in a way that had never been done before by anyone except Jesus. And my friends, you and I need this same kind of boldness today that Peter and John have. It may not be that we're capable of performing miracles, that we believe in a miracle-working God who can do any miracle that he wants at any time, and we pray for that. I'm just saying that we don't necessarily have the gift itself in the same way the apostles did. But I am saying that we can have this same boldness. It doesn't, that this kind of boldness that Peter and John had doesn't necessarily come from church attendance. It doesn't necessarily come from listening to Christian music. It doesn't necessarily come from listening to your favorite Christian podcast. It comes from you spending time with Jesus. If you want to be encouraged in your faith this morning, you need a one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes from you opening up his word and falling on your face before him. And on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment, you are engaging with the living Lord Jesus Christ. That's where conviction comes from, a relationship with the God of the universe through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And when you resist the world, resist it with boldness, resist it with courage, resist it with conviction. Don't give in and don't wimp out. That's what Peter and John are doing, and yet we're seeing the church today capitulate, roll over dead, playing dumb, and running with its tail tucked in so many areas. Not Peter and John. They stand strong. Next we see in verse 14, the man who was healed was an indisputable witness. This man who had been healed is an indisputable witness, verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The unbelieving Jews had nowhere to go. The man who was healed was standing right beside them. He had been lame. He had been a beggar. He had been a burden to society. And now he's right there beside them. He is no longer an outcast, no longer a cripple. He's no longer a handicap. He's standing right there. And he had been walking and leaping and praising God. This man is a witness. The truth is, all of creation 
is a witness to the glory of God. The miracle of this man being healed is a witness to the glory of God. All of creation is a witness to the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glories of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Peter's convincing defense of Christ's work in this man, Peter had said in verse 10 that it was by faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man is now standing before them well. Peter's sermon in his defense of the faith was solid and sound. He could not be refuted. The promise of Jesus to his apostles in Luke 21, 15 is being fulfilled with Peter's words. That verse says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to contradict or to withstand. 1 Peter 1.13, excuse me, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and with respect. Be bold. Be brave. Be courageous. This man's life had been changed through the healing that he had received, and Peter's life had been changed because he had spent time with Jesus. And when your life is radically different, people take notice and begin to ask questions. And when they do, give them the answer which is found in Jesus Christ. And so first we see you can't argue against a changed life. The second heading I want to point out to you this morning is this. Number two, you can't deny the evidence of God's work. You can't deny the evidence of God's work. Your next blank says unbelievers don't want to face the facts. Verses 15 through 16, we read, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The Sanhedrin needed some time to themselves. They needed some time to think. They needed some time, verse 15 says, to confer with each other. The reality is they didn't want to face the facts. This lame man had been radically healed, and they can't deny it. The Sanhedrin is living its worst nightmare. They had crucified Christ for claiming to be the Messiah. Now Christ's followers were everywhere, continuing to proclaim Christ, son of the living God. And now they are making the undeniable claim that this man had been healed by faith in Jesus who had been raised from the dead. And even though the Jews couldn't deny it, they weren't willing to accept it. They were a living illustration of what Jesus said in John 3, 19. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus is the light. The miracles Jesus did were light. The miracles the apostles are doing are supposed to be shining light back on Jesus who is alive, who killed the man. And yet they saw all the light and they referred to it as darkness. They didn't like it. And the reason they didn't like it is because their own works were evil. And that's what sin does. It blinds people from seeing the truth, even when it's right in front of their eyes. They know the truth, yet they suppress it in unrighteousness. They refuse this truth just as they had rejected the truth of the resurrection. And the fact is, unbelievers simply don't want to face the facts, the fact that God exists over all of creation, The fact that God exists can be seen in the constellations. And the fact that God exists can be evidenced in the human conscience. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There is really no excuse for anyone to deny God or the resurrection of Christ or the truths of Christianity. But when you deny the God of the Bible, then you deny the truths of the Bible. And when you deny the truths of the Bible, you start to deny common sense. 
In fact, turn with me to Romans 1. I just read to you verse 20 there that we're without excuse because of creation. And then if you look at verses 21 through 23, we see again this progression of what happens when you deny the God of the Bible, God's Son, the resurrection, all the truths of the Bible. Here's what happens to an unbeliever and to a culture that denies God. Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals animals and creeping things. Because our culture has denied God today, the Bible says they have become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts have been darkened. Claiming to be wise, our culture has become fools. This is apparent in so many areas of our world today. As we are wrapping up Pride Month, how many of you guys are ready for this month to be done with? Come on, let's move on. I want to say a couple things about it, if it's all right with you. All right, as we're wrapping up Pride Month, I just want to say a couple of things that I've been storing up in my heart and mind about this. Really simple. First of all, can I just say, pride is a sin. It is a sin. 1 John 2.16 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To be proud is a sin in and of itself, but to be proud of your sin, that is doubly sinful. That's twice as bad. It's an abomination against God. The LGBTQ plus agenda is the most evil, wicked, and corrupt attack that Satan has unleashed upon God's greatest creation, mankind. And if you'll continue to read on there in Romans chapter 1, look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit To acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This passage clearly teaches that homosexuality is a sin. There is no such thing as a gay marriage. God invented and designed marriage on Genesis chapter 2, 24, when he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And to try to change from one gender to another is a sin. The Bible says in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Celebrate the gender that God created you to be. You are not a woman in a man's body. You are not a man trapped in a woman's body. Thank God. (laughs) You are a spirit soul that God created and put into the body that he chose for you before time began. Be who you are to the glory of God. Another thing I want to say about this month is love is not love. God is love. 
God defines love. God originated love. God is the giver of love. God describes himself as one who is a loving God. It is a attribute that belongs to him. And you and I don't have the right to redefine an attribute of God. God is love, and everyone who knows God loves God and obeys God. God said that sexual love is to be celebrated between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, within the marriage covenant. Any sexual act outside of that union is sexual immorality and has no place in the kingdom of God. Homosexuality does not enable procreation. God said in Genesis 1:28 that we are to be fruitful and multiply. Well, I don't know if you've been to science class in a while, but you can't do that if you have a same-sex relationship. All I'm trying to say in all of this is just reminding us that unbelievers don't want to face the facts. Because they've denied God, because they've denied Christ, now all of this way of the LGBTQ plus agenda becomes normal in a society. They think it's all great. They want to celebrate it. They want to expand it, and they want to shove it down all our throats. And we're not standing for it. It is a disconnect from the gospel. It is a disconnect from the love of God. They didn't want to face the facts of creation or of the resurrection or the meaning of true marriage. And so we have to be bold in our time, bold in this day, both in public and in private, to stand up for the truth that God gives in his word. Now, I know I'm a preacher, so I'm saying it with an edge. So when you're saying it, you might want to be a little bit more conversational. Hey, let's talk about it. I understand you're struggling with this. I understand we all struggle with sin. Okay, so in a normal conversation, it might be different. But I'm supposed to get you fired up, all right, and get you equipped to be ready to have those conversations so that you're having them to the glory of God. Now, I'm going to have to get back to my sermon. That's the sermon within the sermon, all right? But let me get back to verse 17. And the next blank says, unbelievers don't want the word to get out. They don't want the word to get out. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to, to, warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. Even though the Sanhedrin can't deny the resurrection, even though these Jewish leaders can't deny that this lame man has been healed, even though this Jewish leadership team, the Sanhedrin, can't deny that Peter is properly teaching from the Old Testament, they don't want the news of this miracle and the good news of the resurrection to spread. This word spread means to distribute. It means to disseminate. And they don't want the word getting out. They are afraid. They are afraid of the truth. They are afraid to relinquish their power and their control. They are afraid that their system might be wrong and they didn't want to have, to have their lives radically changed by Jesus. Listen to what the same group had done before in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. This is after the resurrection, the Roman guards who had the angels come in and explode the tomb, uh, or God just did it, and then the angels showed up and the, the rock was moved. These guards, they come and told the chief priest what had taken place, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole, away, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The Jewish leaders lied to their own people. They were told about the resurrection from the Roman guards, and they lied about it. They deceived their own people from the truth. And now they're trying to censor this miraculous healing and Peter's sermon that went along with it. And you understand, it's not just the miracle, but the preaching of the gospel that they're trying to censor. The purpose of the miracle is to point to God's power, to God's messenger, and to God's message. But the truth is, you can't argue against a changed life, you can't deny the evidence of God's work, and you can't, number three, you can't contain the truths of the gospel. Your next blank says, the attempt to muzzle the gospel. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
The Sanhedrin has now made their decision. You can't talk about the miracle, they tell Peter and John, and you can't talk about Jesus. You can't talk about what Jesus has done, and you can't talk about what Jesus taught. You can't talk about who he is, and you can't talk about why he came to earth. They say to him, you can't speak at all in the name of Jesus. And this is total censorship about all the things related to Jesus and to his words. To censor Peter and John from talking about Jesus was to censor them from talking about his word. So they are basically telling Peter and John, don't tell us anything that Jesus said. That means don't tell us about the Sermon on the Mount. Don't tell us about the Olivet Discourse. Don't tell us about what Jesus taught about forgiveness. Don't tell us about what Jesus taught us about God's love. Don't tell us about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Don't tell us that Jesus is the bread of heaven. Don't tell us that Jesus is the door for the sheep or the good shepherd. They didn't want to hear anything that Jesus had ever said in his whole life. Jesus was right when he had predicted slash prophesied in Matthew 10, 16 through 18, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's what the leaders did on that day, and that's what ungodly leaders have done throughout history. And this is why we have to be aware that what's happening in our culture is tied to ungodly leadership. I was asked years ago when I was graduating from a junior college in the great state of Georgia, I had received some awards at this uh, graduation, so they had asked me to say the closing prayer a couple of days before I was asked, to, before the uh, ceremony, the dean of students brought me into his office for a solemn conversation about a few things. And then he said, oh, by the way, when you pray on Friday, you can't use the name of Jesus. I said, well, why not? And he says, because it might offend some people. And I'm like, does it offend you? And he says, I'm not allowed to answer that question, but you are not allowed to use the name of Jesus. What do you think I did? <laughs> I'd already graduated, right? So I said my prayer, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I was asked by the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors, they specifically asked me not to pray in the name of Jesus. Went down to the LA place, wherever it is downtown, to get up and say a prayer. I opted to be a little bit more careful that time because I was scared to get arrested. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, at that time, I worded my prayer in such a way that while I didn't actually say the name of Jesus, I did say, in the name of your son, who gave his life, who died on a cross, who was raised from the dead, who provides life for all who would believe in him, in his name, we pray. <laughs> Amen. You know, I'm just saying that the culture, the culture here wants to completely eradicate any mention of the name of Jesus. Did I tell you about the time while I'm telling stories, I tell you about the time that my wife and I took our five kids to the Rose Bowl, January the 1st, 2014. It was me and her and five little bitty kids, three of them still in diapers. Makai, you might not have been in diapers. You might have been out. But it was a cold morning. We got there early. We actually paid to get the seats because, you know, we, we had a, a, a lot of uh, people with us with our kids and all. So we're sitting there in the stands. We're waiting for the parade to start. And this guy starts walking down, you know, the, the parade way there on Colorado Boulevard. And he's holding up a sign that says John 316. So all he's doing is it's just one guy. He's got a sign. And he's going up and down. And he's got John 316. And I'm like, you know, part of me, when I see that kind of stuff, part of me is like, all right, that's cool. And then part of me is like, ah, I don't know if I'd do that. You know, I don't know if I want to be the John 316 guy, you know. And I'm like, but I still like what he's doing, you know. So I'm kind of going through this wrestle in my own heart about what I thought about it. And then all of a sudden, people just started booing him. Like, just big time. The guy walks across. He walks in front of us. Everybody's like, boo, boo. And they're just like joshing him, booing him, pointing him, pushing him, you know, just with their hands. Like, get out of here. And I just thought, man, how sad. How sad is that? And then just about an hour or two later, this parade was where 
the first homosexual marriage was performed at a Rose Bowl by an African-American pastor to two white guys. And this float comes down, right in the middle of the parade, the float comes by, and when the float gets in front of us, the crowd erupted in applause, cheering. And I thought to myself, what has happened to our culture where a guy with John 3.16 gets booed out of the parade, people who are filled with the pride of their sin are celebrated in this parade. What a shame. What a reminder of how serious it is that our culture has gotten away from us, but at the same time, we have the opportunity to take it back, right? That doesn't mean we just tuck our tails and run and be like, well, I guess we lost California. Let's all move to the East Coast (laughs) or to Idaho. You already know what I'm going to say about that, right? You can't leave. You're staying right here with me and my family, and we're going to fight. We're going to fight it out to the death. You're right. You're not going anywhere. (laughs) Don't leave this great state. Let's take it back. Uh, You think I'm kidding, but I'm really serious that we have an opportunity to stand for Christ. Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that means as long as you're here, Jesus is here. And as long as we lift up his name, he will draw all people to himself. And may we forever be unashamed of the name of Jesus. That's what we got to be we got to be those kinds of Christians. And then we see in verses 19 and 20, your next blank, the answer about who is in charge. The answer about who is in charge. Verses 19 to 20, that Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to man, or excuse me, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John are basically saying, who are you to judge over us? God is our ultimate judge. So therefore, you must judge us based on whether we should do what God says or what man says. Jesus had said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And that was supposed to start right here in Jerusalem. The apostles knew that they needed to obey God over man. It is a clear biblical principle that believers are to obey their governing authorities, right? So we understand that. It is a clear biblical principle, even though I introduced John Knox's idea that he would say is a little bit different than that, where you fight against any sin or any sinful leader anytime you want. That was his position. What I'm trying to say is, in, in general, we do know that the Bible calls us to submit to our governing authorities, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, but there are limitations to that obedience. God has instituted the authorities of government, home, and church, and any time the government overreaches with abusive power into your home or into God's church, then the government should not be obeyed. You must obey God over man. In fact, when God's commands conflict those of the government, which is happening more and more and more every single day, the government must be disobeyed. And when the nation of Israel was in slavery to Egypt, Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to commit infanticide by killing all male babies. Exodus 1, 15 to 17, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other named Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if he is a daughter, she may live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Thank God for godly women like these midwives who are willing to defy the king himself to let these babies live. In Daniel 6, the high officials of Babylon had King Darius establish an injunction and sign a document which said that everyone who made a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to the king, that they would be cast into the den of lions. Daniel 6, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he tucked his tail and ran. Is that what it says? And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber 
open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel kept on keeping on being the man of God that he had been from his youth. Daniel simply prayed to the God of heaven as he always did, and he was arrested and then thrown into the lion's den. Peter and John stood in this same vein, with this same courage, as they said here in Acts 4 verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When you spend time with Jesus, you can't help but talk about him. And nothing or nobody can take that away. They had seen the living Christ. They had heard every sermon. They could not keep silent. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that is true in the public square. And that is true in the privacy of your home and private conversations you might choose to have with your coworkers or with your neighbors. And then we see in verses 21 through 22, the awareness about what's going on. The awareness about what's going on. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so here at this point, all they could do was threaten Peter and John a little further. The Jewish officials did not want a riot on their hands. I told you there's 15 to 20,000 believers. The crowd here is excited about the healing of this man. So they weren't going to go against the, the sentiment, in a, if you will, of the crowd. They knew that these people were praising God. And so uh, this man, I mean, he was more than 40 years old. And now he's walking around and he's leaping. And there was an awareness that if the Jewish officials punished Peter and John any further, there would be a revolt in Jerusalem. Can I say something to you? Churches in our state need to step up and take notice. Churches in our state need to link arms and stand up together. If the government wants to squash one person and one church, they might. But they can't squash every Christian at every church that stands up together because it is possible to put a little pressure with the volume of people who stand courageously. You understand part of what protected Peter and John there, and they would have willingly died, but part of what protected them is that the culture supported this great work that had been done. And so the officials said, well, we're not going to kill them right now because, you know, we don't want to get stoned ourselves by the crowd. And that's what they say several times whenever they were about to arrest Jesus or, or in Luke uh, 20, 19, uh, but they feared the people. In Acts 5, 26, a, l- a little bit later, they were going to uh, uh, arrest uh, the, the apostles, excuse me, and they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So we're just saying, it's, a, it's okay, we can get our shift back. We can shift it back. I, I don't know if you believe that, but I'm just saying we can at least be faithful to, to gather together as people and to gather other Christians that are outspoken about the gospel and about the impinging uh, stipulations and restrictions that our government has given that we understand now more than ever post-COVID. And again, I'm not like this anti-government, just running crazy anarchy pastor, all right? I'm just saying it's time for us to continue to take a stand. May God help us get back to that point that we are not afraid of the government, but that the government is afraid of us. That's what I'm talking about. There's a famous story about John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, facing the persecution at the hands of the emperor of the Byzantine Empire in the 5th century. First, the empire treated Chrysostom with banishment, to which he replied, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, the emperor said. You cannot for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasure, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left, the emperor responded. No, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. Now that's the kind 
of courage I'm talking about. I'm talking about it's time that we as God's people fear nothing and no one. We fear God and we fear God alone. And because of that, we will not be intimidated, we will not be controlled, and we will not be stripped of our God-given rights to worship him as supreme and to declare him as Lord. Are you ready to resist as a Christian? Do you have the boldness that you need to resist the world? How do you get that boldness? How can you help unbelievers face the facts presented in creation? and in their conscience? What do you do when people try to muzzle you and tell you not to talk about Jesus and controversial issues in which the Bible addresses? I hope that you'll take a note from this chapter four of Peter and John and their boldness and that you'll rise up in a God-honoring way in Christian resistance. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today. We're praying and asking that you would allow us as a church to be wise and winsome and to be unashamed and to know where our place is. Our place is in heaven with you. And yet you've placed us here in this world at this time to have an opportunity to speak the truth in love, but with great conviction. And I pray that you would just help us us to contemplate, maybe even the views somewhat of John Knox, the reformer to contemplate and understand when we submit and when we fight and what that looks like for us as a church, as individuals, as Christians in a public school or at work or in our neighborhood. God, we want to be salt and light. We want to disseminate and spread the gospel far and wide. We want to do it in a loving, kind, and gentle way, but we want to do it in a courageous, bold, and confrontative way because we don't want sin to just run rampant. And you're the only one who can stop it. And you stop it by transforming individuals, one human being at a time, by granting faith, by changing hearts, by giving life. I pray that you would do that in us and through us in a way that would make a difference here in Santa Clarita and around the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.